the Vietnam War was a conflict in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. From 1 November 1955 to the fall of Saigon on 30 April 1975. It lasted almost 20 years with direct U.S. involvement ending in 1973. Iron Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, your senior drill instructor. From now on, you will speak only when spoken to. And the first and last words out of your filthy sewers will be, sir. Do you maggots understand that? Sir, sir yes, sir. Bullshit, I can't hear you. Sound off like you got a pair. Sir, yes, sir. Fighting soldiers from the sky Fearless men who jump and die Men who mean just what they say The brave men of the Green Beret Silver wings upon their chest These are men America's best 100 men will test today but only three win the Green Beret trained to live off nature's land trained in combat hand to hand men who fight by night and day Courage take from the Green Beret Silver wings upon their chest These are men, America's best One hundred men will test today But only three win the Green Beret Back at home, a young wife waits Her green beret has met his fate He has died for those oppressed Leaving her this last request Put silver wings on my son's chest Make him one America's best He'll be a man They'll test one day Have him win The Green Beret This is a story about Vietnam War soldiers Yo! Saddle up! Lock and load! Hello everyone, this is Jamie Lee. Vietnam, it's been 50 years and we still remember this Veterans Day 2022. Where are you going to pull back to? They're all over the perimeter. Now you be advised, you will hold in place and you will fight. That means you, Lieutenant. Bravo sticks out. No war is easy for those who fight it 
and each conflict brings its own challenges. Vietnam War soldiers endured many hardships and faced many problems. Combatants on both sides faced physical challenges posed by the climate, terrain, and wildlife of the country. They also struggled with logistical problems and the complex political situation in Vietnam. One significant problem faced by Vietnam War soldiers was being engaged in a conflict without clear military objectives. There was no war front to advance, no safe region to defend, not even a well-defined theater in which to operate. The Vietnam conflict was a 360-degree war where any soldier, particularly Americans, might encounter attacks, ambushes, and booby traps at any place or time. It was a conflict where territory changed hands frequently. People moved freely and their political loyalties were often unclear. Unlike earlier conflicts, such as both world wars, the Vietnam War was a shiftless and often vague struggle between a powerful conventional military force and a guerrilla army that operated in the shadows. The troops of North Vietnam and the Viet Cong were under-resourced and poorly equipped, at least in comparison to American soldiers. They did have some significant advantages, however, including a close knowledge of the local people, language, and terrain. The NVA, or North Vietnamese Army, and Viet Cong drew lessons from their eight-year-long war with France, which gave them valuable experience fighting a major Western power. The communist leadership adopted guerrilla methods and avoided major battles. It was a return to the elephant and tiger strategy previously used against the French. Only the American elephant was larger and potentially more dangerous. Hanoi's goal was to prolong the war for as long as it could while inflicting casualties on South Vietnamese and American personnel. They knew that America's involvement in Vietnam was costly, that its political and military leaders were impatient, and that the American public would tire of the war and exert pressure on their leaders. The success of this strategy hinged on training and discipline. Though essentially a civilian militia, the Viet Cong also had a significant number of men who were highly trained and well-drilled regular soldiers. Consequently, they saw themselves as professionals. There were more than 50 Viet Cong training bases or centers across South Vietnam where personnel were given instruction in weapons handling, explosives, radio operation, and guerrilla warfare tactics. To ensure loyalty and discipline, Viet Cong volunteers were also tutored in the historical and political background of the conflict. Not all Viet Cong were so well trained. A sizable number were reservists, civilian farmers, workers, teenagers, and boys who took up arms when necessary. These reservists trained occasionally, if at all. Viet Cong troops had no standard equipment. They used whatever weapons were available. The most common Viet Cong weapon was the Chinese-made AK-47 submachine gun. Though some soldiers used confiscated French or Japanese rifles, 
Soviet-made artillery grenades and mortars were also used, though they were in much shorter supply. Always short of small arms, the Viet Cong became masters of adaptation. They used improvised or handmade munitions constructed by soldiers and sympathetic villagers from whatever material could be stolen or scrounged. Weapons were fashioned from anything remotely dangerous, from scavenged tin cans to discarded wire. The most important ingredients, gunpowder and explosive materials, were often provided by the enemy in a single year. Unexploded American bombs left an estimated 20,000 tons of ordnance scattered over the Vietnamese countryside. After air raids and bombing runs, Viet Cong volunteers retrieved these duds, and the dangerous business of creating new weapons began. Viet Cong units also built primitive weapons and booby traps, like pits containing punji sticks or venomous snakes as well. Evasion and concealment were hallmarks of the Viet Cong. In the mountains and jungles, where landscape and foliage served as cover, hiding from the enemy was comparatively easy. In the plains and closer to the cities, the Viet Cong relied on underground tunnel systems, some of which were large and complex. Tunnel building predated the arrival of the Americans, but the Viet Cong used it extensively during the Vietnam War. Every civilian in a Viet Cong area was expected to dig three feet of tunnel per day. The tunnels were used not just as hiding places or shelter, they also served as headquarters, barracks, warehouses, munitions dumps, hospitals, and kitchens. The largest tunnel system were in the Hu Chai district and the Iron Triangle, just a handful of miles from Saigon. These networks contain more than 120 kilometers of tunnel. American soldiers, in contrast, were better armed, better equipped, and more extensively trained than the Viet Cong. Whether this preparation was sufficient for service in Vietnam is a matter of debate. The majority of Americans sent to Vietnam completed eight weeks of basic training, followed by courses in infantry, artillery, engineering, and other specializations, each lasting between two and six months. Soldiers deployed to Vietnam were also given a fortnight specialist training before leaving the United States. On arrival in Vietnam, these newcomers, referred to as newbies by more experienced soldiers, were given another fortnight's training and orientation. Whether this preparation was adequate or specialized enough for the situation in Vietnam is doubtful. In the 1960s, America's combat troops formed the most powerful offensive battlefield force on the planet. But the Vietnam War was far too complex to be won only on the battlefield. The effectiveness of the American soldiers was undermined not by a lack of skill or courage, but by other factors, such as local conditions, unclear military objectives, the highly politicized nature of the war, and the stealth and inventiveness of their enemy. 
Vietnam's subtropical climate, terrain, and fauna also took their toll on American troops. The heat, humidity, monsoonial rain, and groundwater meant uninformed GIs were almost constantly drenched with water or sweat. Patrols into the boonies often had to traipse through thick jungle, sharp vines and foliage, up and down steep rises and ditches, through swamps and across flooded rice paddies. Vietnam's wildlife posed its own dangers. American soldiers encountered malarial mosquitoes, leeches, ticks, fire ants, and 30 different kinds of venomous snake. One historian estimates between 150 and 300 U.S. personnel died in Vietnam from the effects of a snake bite. The nature of the Vietnam War also took a personal toll on U.S. soldiers. Though trained to follow orders and disregard external factors, most American GIs were acutely aware of the tremendous difficulties they faced. Their mission to secure South Vietnam gain the trust and loyalty of the people, and eradicate the Viet Cong often seemed impossible. Many combat operations had no discernible outcomes other than body counts, which themselves were no more than estimates. An area could be cleared of Viet Cong in the morning, but be back in enemy hands at sundown after U.S. troops had departed. Vietnamese villagers were sometimes welcoming, sometimes treacherous, but mostly indifferent to American soldiers, very few of them of whom could speak the local language. As one U.S. soldier in Vietnam asked, What am I doing here? We don't take any land. We don't give it back. We just mutilate bodies. What the F are we doing here? Another American soldier asked, Who is the enemy? How could you distinguish between the civilians and the non-civilians? The same people who come and work in the bases at daytime, they just want to shoot and kill you at nighttime. So how can you distinguish between the two, the good or the bad? All of them look the same. Disillusionment with the war was coupled with psychological trauma. Most U.S. soldiers who had spent time in-country had seen fellow servicemen, sometimes their friends, killed or disfigured by sniper fire, mines, or booby traps. The Viet Cong who laid these traps were reluctant to engage in conventional warfare, so American soldiers felt deprived of the opportunity for retaliation or payback. The frustration in some units contributed to a breakdown in discipline. The practice of fragging, killing, or injuring an unpopular superior officer by activating a fragmentation grenade close by became relatively common. One source cites 730 cases between 1969 and 1971. Illicit drugs like marijuana, opium, morphine, and heroin were widely available to American soldiers in Vietnam. In some combat units, up to 80% of men were casual or habitual drug users. The U.S. military did little to combat drug abuse 
until 1971. exacted an enormous human cost. Estimates of the number of Vietnamese soldiers and civilians killed range from 966,000 to 3 million. Some 275,310,000 Cambodians. 20,000 to 62,000 Laotians, and 58,220 U.S. service members also died in the conflict, and 1,626 remain missing in action. I had friends and family that served in Vietnam, a cousin named Tommy Young, who was hit by shrapnel from a mortar shell, and a neighbor named Terry Casto, whose rifle blew up on him from getting too hot. Thank God both made it back alive. But one of these 58,220 Vietnam soldiers has his name engraved on the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall in Washington, D.C. His name is James Allen Hardman. He was born November 11, 1946, and is from San Leandro in Alameda County, California. He was assigned to the U.S. Army 25th Infantry Division, 2nd Battalion, 22nd Infantry Headquarters Company in South Vietnam. His specialty was an armor intelligence specialist. He was drafted into the Army. He began his tour on September 25, 1968, and had the rank of sergeant. James Allen Hardman died through hostile action, small arms fire, on November 8, 1968, just three days shy of his 22nd birthday. The incident's location, 17 kilometers southeast of Tay Ninh City, South Vietnam, Tay Ninh Province. You will find his name inscribed on the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall, panel 39W, line 36. The wall is now 40 years old this year. Now, here is a story about Army Vietnam veteran Jerry Prater. May 1968. The one thing all soldiers looked forward to when they arrived in Vietnam, particularly those with an MOS or military occupational specialty of 11 Bravo, which is light weapons infantry, was their D-Rose date, date eligible for return from overseas. We served our duty and survived, even though we may have physical and or emotional wounds. Most of the physical wounds can be seen and treated immediately, but the emotional wounds 
can't be seen, and they may not be noticed until years after we left Vietnam. Many of the emotional wounds were never treated because the soldiers may not have known the problem existed, or they knew they had a problem, but no one would acknowledge or treat it properly. I was originally notified with Special Orders Number 97, dated 6 April 1968, that my D-Rose date would be 24 May 68, and that I was being assigned to the 1st Battalion, 41st Infantry at Fort Hood, Texas. However, a short time later, I received a form, Headquarters CAV FL 22, 3rd April 67, which was titled AVDAAG, Subject, Port Call, Air Travel. This form constituted an amendment to my orders, and I was then ordered to report to the 22nd Replacement Battalion, VCR Air Base in Cameron Bay not later than 0230 hours on 20 May 1968 for departure on military air command flight number N254 to depart at 0230 hours on 21 May 1968. I was very happy to leave sooner, even though it was only three days earlier than my original D-Rose date. I arrived at the replacement battalion at approximately 1500 hours on 19 May 1968. Shortly after my arrival, I purchased my ticket for my flight from Seattle, Washington to Love Field in Dallas, primarily because the representative of Worldwide Travel told me that it would be cheaper to buy my ticket in Vietnam because I would not have to pay any tax for the ticket. More importantly, I saw Edward House, and, and we stayed together until we boarded the plane. Neither one of us got much sleep the first night because... We were terribly excited that we were leaving Vietnam in less than 36 hours. We got virtually no sleep the second night because we had to board the plane at 0200 hours. We boarded MAC flights N254 on schedule, and Edward House, Larry Nunn, and I sat in the same row of seats, just like we did when we flew from Oakland to Playcue one year earlier. We sat down in our seats and were very excited that the day we had been looking forward to for the past 364 days had finally arrived. As I sat in my seats, I was hoping and praying that the Viet Cong or North Vietnamese Army would not attack the plane or runway with mortars or artillery. Then, after what seemed to be an eternity, the plane started moving and taxing toward the runway for takeoff. I began praying even harder because I didn't want to get killed in the airplane while it was on the runway. The plane turned onto the runway and stopped while waiting for permission to take off. Then the plane started moving and picking up speed, and I continued praying very hard because we were almost out of range for artillery shells. We picked up sufficient speed to take off, and I could hear the wheels being raised and locked. I didn't feel safe and out of danger for about five more minutes until I knew we were totally out of range of any hostile fire and on our way back to the world. Ed, Larry, and I began talking, and I made up my mind that I was going to stay awake the entire trip back because I didn't know when or if I would ever see my two very good friends again. 
after about an hour, I fell asleep, and I didn't wake up until we made a refueling stop, which I believe was in Japan. The stop was very brief, and we did not deplane. After we took off, I made an effort to stay awake and talk, but I fell asleep again about an hour after takeoff. I just couldn't stay awake because I had very little sleep during the previous two nights, and I had come down from being so keyed up and excited about leaving Vietnam. Also, we were in darkness from the time we left Vietnam until a little less than an hour before we landed at Fort Lewis, Washington. We landed at Fort Lewis at approximately 0600 hours on 21 May 1968. The date did not change because we crossed back over the international date line. When I deplaned and stepped on the runway, I bent over and put my hand on the ground because I was ecstatic to be back in the good old U.S. of A. Now, I was looking forward to that wonderful steak meal we had heard would be served on our return. We didn't get a steak. We were fed eggs and pancakes. But that was fine with me because I wanted to get to the Seattle airport and on my plane home as soon as humanly possible. Since we wore jungle fatigues and boots on the plane home, we were issued a set of dress greens, a necktie, a pair of dress shoes and socks, a blue infantry shoulder rope, and a raincoat. They also sewed our first calf patch and our rank insignia on the coat. Since I was scheduled to leave on Brana Flight 183, departing at 10.45 in the morning on 21 May 68, I was one of the first buses that took the soldiers to the Seattle airport. After getting off the bus, about six or seven of us soldiers began walking to the waiting area for three or four gates. As we arrived at the waiting area, we were greeted with a group of protesters who began yelling at us, saying, How many babies did you kill? And how does it feel to be a murderer? And other similar comments. They also threw a lot of objects at us, but none were hard enough to hurt us. They kept cussing and yelling at us for several minutes. Then they left and went to another waiting area. None of this really bothered us at the time because we were so happy to be home and away from the constant danger of being killed. Plus, the six or seven of us were there to support each other. I began to feel a sense of loneliness and emptiness as the other soldiers boarded their plane. I boarded my plane, and we made a short flight for a stopover in Portland, Oregon. We took off within 30 minutes of the time we landed, and we were now on our way for a nonstop flight to Love Field in Dallas. One thing I noticed was all the other passengers were getting soft drinks, and the stewardess was taking their liquor orders. However, she didn't offer me a soft drink and didn't ask if I wanted any liquor. I finally had to ask for a Coke, and the stewardess was very curt and rude when she finally brought it to me. The same thing happened when they started serving the lunch meal. All the other passengers got their lunch, and I had to ask for mine, and I got a very rude and hostile comment when my plate was delivered to me. Since the economy section of the plane was about one quarter full, 
The stewardess was not busy and had no reason not to serve me, same as the as she did for all the other passengers. The only difference between me and all the other passengers was that I was in my army uniform and all the other passengers were in civilian clothing. We landed in Dallas at about 1445 in the afternoon and I and I got off the plane and started walking toward the terminal and baggage claim area. Shortly after entering the terminal area, I was again the object of protesters who were yelling, Baby killer! Nazi dog! Hitler henchman! And a few other comments. They also threw some objects at me, but once again, none were hard enough to hurt when they hit me. I finally got to the baggage claim area, and my wife was there waiting for me. She took a picture of me as soon as I was close to her. Since she was living with her parents while I was in the Army, my wife took me to a hotel so we could get reacquainted. After a couple of hours and a shower, I drove my car for the first time in one year. I drove to my parents' house in Garland, which took about 15 minutes. As I arrived at the house, I saw a big banner that they had put over the top of the garage door that said, Welcome home, Jerry. I finally was able to be around people who loved me, were glad to see me, and who were glad that I was finally home and out of danger. All of the comments and actions of the protesters didn't bother me when I first returned from Vietnam. While we were still in the Army, all the Vietnam veterans always had the support of other veterans. We understood and cared for each other because we were the only people who really understood what we had endured while we were in Vietnam. Also, we had developed a bond that would last a lifetime. When we were discharged from the Army, we all lost that connection and we were on our own. A few years of negative reporting on television and in the newspapers, I began to get angry and depressed because of the people in the United States had no idea what was really going on in Vietnam and what we had to endure. Also, when some people learned that I was a combat veteran, they distanced themselves from me and would have little or nothing to do with me. Welcome home, soldier. You answered when your government called, you didn't move to Canada or do something to yourself so you wouldn't be called to serve. We all paid a price a lot higher than anyone, other than other Vietnam veterans, will ever care, understand, or appreciate. We gave up more than just the one year of our lives. We gave up our innocence. And in many cases, we lost our wives or girlfriends. We all came back with various degrees of trauma caused by what we had to do and what we saw, as well as gunshot, shrapnel, or other wounds to our bodies. We were deprived of the opportunity to live our lives in our own country and do the things we wanted to do, go to places we wanted to go, and eat the food we wanted to eat. We gave up all the pleasures of life for one year not because we wanted to, but because our government told us we had to. Mm -hmm.
what was the purpose of the Vietnam War? What I feel is the lost truth about Vietnam really is and why it relates so strongly to what has just happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. In a way, the purpose of the war was to prevent something that was bad going worse. And it is my hypothesis that what happened in Vietnam has now happened in the Middle East where the withdrawal of U.S. troops has allowed ISIS to gain a sizable control of what were already unstable countries. In late 1972, South Vietnam and the U.S. were winning the Vietnam War in every possible way. At that point, there was, there was no way the Allied forces could have lost so long as they continued to work and fight in the same manner that they had. The reason this fact has been somewhat overlooked in history is because of what happened afterwards. In late 1972, the North Vietnamese officials had already made it clear that they were losing the war. A decisive victory was made all but certain when Nixon ordered the bombing of Hanoi, their capital city, in order to destroy their manufacturing base and, and order the bombing of Haiphong, which was a major port city. At this point, the U.S. and South Vietnamese had northern Vietnam in a chokehold, which is when Nixon offered a deal. He said he would stop the bombing if North Vietnam would have added addend the Paris peace talks. The end of the war was finally here. So what went wrong? In January 23, 1973, the peace treaty was signed and victory was won. Then Watergate happened and Nixon resigned. The Democrats took power and defunded the military aid that was being sent to South Vietnam. The northern Vietnamese took their opportunity and quickly attacked the South, which dragged the U.S. back into the war, which they eventually lost. The Democrats refused to help arm South Vietnam against their aggressors, even though it was part of the South Peace Agreement. Gerald Ford, to his credit, begged Congress to send military aid as the South was being attacked, but most of his own party deserted him. So how does this relate to what happened in the Middle East? The U.S. and U.K. troops were an integral part of the Iraq and Afghan peacekeeping force. Both Iraq and Afghanistan are not stable enough to survive on their own without help from superior forces, and for a long time they had, been, had much needed help. Then Barack Obama pulled his troops home, and within three months, we saw that ISIS had taken hold of most of Iraq, Afghan, and Syria. As soon as the United Kingdom and United States forces were removed, an aggressive and violent force took hold of the countries, and the same thing happened in Vietnam the moment that the U.S. government removed support for the South Vietnamese. So in conclusion... The parallels between Vietnam and what happened in the Middle East are shocking. When the United States pulled support from the Middle East, as it did in Vietnam, an aggressive and violent force took a stronghold. Now, just like with Vietnam, the U.S. has been dragged back into the conflict, which is now set to go on for many years. The original reason to go to war with Vietnam was always that they were an aggressive force that was expanding their influence unchecked. The United States came in and not only slowed the progress of their expansion, 
They also stopped the North Vietnamese and even had them sign a peace treaty. The point of the war was to stop an aggressive and violent force from spreading its influence. And just like now with the Middle East, when the United States stopped supporting the victims, the war started up again. The fact that this chain of events has happened again is proof enough that the U.S.'s reasons to go to war were both valid and required, and that if the U.S. had seen the job through on both occasions, it would have stopped a lot of death and suffering. There's something happening here What it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down There's battle lines being drawn Nobody's right if everybody's wrong Young people speaking their minds Are getting so much resistance From behind Any time we stop Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down What a field day for the heat Thousand people in the street singing songs and they carrying signs. Mostly say hooray for our side. It's time we stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. Paranoia strikes deep Into your life it will creep It starts when you're always afraid Step out of the line, the man come and take you away, away. You better stop, hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going, you better stop Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going, you better stop Now, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going. We better stop. Children, what's that sound? 